Listener Production. Hi, I'm Dilrup Jai Singer. My health and wellness journey began when I lost over 30 kilos. Since then, I've learned how focusing on being healthy both physically and mentally can turn your life around and put you in the driver's seat. And it isn't all eating kale and doing 100 burpees either, although we probably will talk about that. I'm lucky enough to be joined by experts as well as a bunch of idiot comedy mates of mine to talk everything from weight loss to waking up refreshed. Um, without the meditation music and wind chimes, please. Across this series, we've spoken about everything from mental health to fitness and everything in between. And hopefully, as the podcast has gone on, you've taken away some advice that has helped you change your life for the better. Because you matter. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's so true. The moment you start looking after yourself is the moment you can make a real change, not just in your life, but for everyone around you too. Everyone is on their own journey, and everyone's journey is at a different stage. And everyone has a story. Luke Bonner, host of The Night Shift on Triple M, has made a career talking to people over the last 40 years. He certainly has some incredible stories and he's here to share them with us today. Look, we've got to start with The Man Cave. You're broadcasting to us from your man cave and i got to be honest with you, it's one of the biggest man caves I've ever seen. Because there's a pool table, there's guitar. What are the things that aren't inside that maybe we need to... We have an electric dartboard oh. which has Wi-Fi connection. They're plastic tip darts that stick into a hole and so it registers your score. So they're not really proper darts. They're pretend darts for when you've had too many beers. <laughs> yeah. But on that though, you're someone who works, let's be honest, pretty crazy hours as well. Give us a little bit of a snapshot of where you're at today. Well, I got to work at six last night and looked at the stories of the day because the show I do is a talk show with classic rock. And so the stories change all the time. I never stop looking for stories. When you're in talk radio, you never, ever look at the world complacently ever again. Everything you see is potential content. It could be something you see on the bus or a, a, a couple having an argument in the restaurant or a conversation you have at the service station. If you really think about it, the, the whole world, everything, and you as, as, as a comedian, you would know that the best content is observational. Right. And so the best talk topics is a conversation you've had with your kids or your partner or something silly your dog's done. And, and if people relate to it, the phones light up and you have a conversation. You have a memory of when you thought, this is such a narrow topic, we're not going to get anything on it, and it just blew up? All the time. A fellow rang up and uh, he rang up for, I forget the topic because the topic paled into insignificance because I said, <laughs> by the way, why are you up at 2 o'clock? What do you do? And he said, well, I have an unusual job. I clean up houses of dead people. Oh. And he said, unfortunately, a lot of these houses used to belong to hoarders where they just collect everything over a period of 30 or 40 years. And I said, what's the most unusual thing you've ever found in a house? And he said, well, after four days and six shipping containers of rubbish being taken to the tip, we found that the floorboards were rotting and underneath was a sex dungeon with... <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> he said there was mirrors on the ceiling. He said there was shag pile carpet. There were handcuffs to the wall and none of his family knew that he led this double life. Unbelievable. And they found out when they cleaned the house up. That's all right. That's not their business to know. No, to each their own. Yeah. So he <laughs> rang up about something quite innocuous and I said, what are you doing? How come you're up? What do you do for a living? And out that came. But you know, because of the job I have, I mean, I'm very, very lucky that I get to interview 
interesting people and mm. a lot of them are, are stars from overseas who, you know, do the radio talkback circuit. You know, they, they come in as guests. I've interviewed six prime ministers. Some of my favourite guests ended up becoming friends. I ended up becoming quite good friends with the former leader of the Labor Party in New South Wales, a man who nearly became prime minister, and that was Kim Beasley. Some people you gel with. I mean, you've been doing these interviews now, and some people you gel with and there's a chemistry mm-hmm. and you really like the person. Mm-hmm. There's one famous person who I won't name, a famous actress, who um, got her people to contact my people and gave me her motel room and wanted to know if I wanted to go up for supper. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll tell you off air. Yeah, please I'll, do. I'll tell you please off air. Please do. But, I mean, so so you, you, you obviously were not in a position to take up that offer? Uh, not at that time, no. But also that's a testament to how good your interviewing skills are. <laughs> <laughs> to cop an invite. I know, I've been doing these interviews and no one's invited me back to their motel room. <laughs> All your broadcast is live. Correct. Has there been any things that have got you into a little bit of hot water? Yeah. My good friend, Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> oh, Sir Jeffrey Archer of Cain and Abel fame. He had just written a book called First Amongst Equals and he was in Australia and the PR people said, would you be interested in talking to Jeffrey Archer? And I was going to leave it because I hadn't read any of his books, but my producer was a huge fan. She gave me some bullet points and she said, just mention that all his endings are unique. They're, they're all a little bit different. So I'm doing the live interview and I said, uh, all your endings are, are different because I, I hadn't read one of, the, one of his books. I said, for example, in the latest book, it says, <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, can I please introduce to you your new prime minister? And there was a a huge pause, and he said, is this live? I said, yes. He said, you beep idiot. <laughs> You've just given away the whole ending of the book. And he, and he went off. His, <laughs> his abuse was so animated, it was like John Cleese in Faulty Towers. It was right. I, I didn't know whether he was joking. or Yeah, he, he went off his nut. Years later, we're at a, a hotel and up on the TV screen in the corner, was Michael Parkinson interviewing Jeffrey Archer. Mm. And Michael Parkinson said, what's the worst interview you've ever done? (laughs) And he said, some idiot in Australia gave away the ending of a book. And I put my hands up in the air. I said, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. In Jeffrey Archer's uh, man cave, there's a dartboard with your face on it that he's just been chucking, like real darts. Exactly. And my photo's in his freezer. So here's the lesson. Always do your research. Look, in the last uh, decade, I mean, how many decades have you been on air? Four, four decades or so? 1978. Running mail around Sydney for 2GB at the age of 16. There you are. And anyone who has longevity in their careers has to be able to embrace failure or setbacks or mistakes and be able to learn from them. We talked about the Jeffrey Archer incident. Yeah. But do you have any stories that come to mind in terms of the biggest mistakes that you've ever made? Yeah, thanks for Jeffrey Archer again. <laughs> you, you can't make this up. And when I was learning my announcing craft at 2LF and Young, which is five hours southwest of Sydney, anyway, I'm on 2LF on a Saturday morning and there's no receptionist. There's just you and a microphone and it's raining. Anyone who's ever broadcast in regional radio knows how important sporting cancellations are. It's a small town, there's netball, there's cricket, there's everything. And when it rains... I'm taking the phone, junior cricket's off here, netball's off here. I'm, I'm flat out, absolutely flat out. There are two main important things that you announce 
in country radio. One of the funeral announcements. Did you know that? They, mm. We announced the funeral announcements. Well, I grew up with that, yeah. Okay, and the birthday calls. Anyway, the phone rang and it was Sister Augusta from the Mount St. Joseph's Nursing Home. And she said, Luke, you've got birthday calls coming up at 8.15 and we didn't get this birthday call in and it's so important. It's Mrs. Smith and she's 100 years old today and she's got a huge family reunion happening in Young. People have come from all over Australia, all over the place to be with her today and I forgot to put the birthday call in. And could you do me a huge favour? And I said, of course, if you have time, could you play her a Frank Sinatra song, any Frank Sinatra song? And I'm still busy. No, it's, there's no receptionist. It's just you. Uh-huh. And birthday calls are coming up. And I, oh, God, birthday calls. Mrs. Smith, Frank Sinatra. So I raced into the record library and I grabbed Frank Sinatra's greatest hits, a double album. Uh-huh. I pulled out one record. I queued it up on the 33 on the turntable, track one, side one. And I said, Mrs. Smith, 100 years old today, what an achievement. And everybody is thinking of you, and I want you to know I'm thinking of you. And here is a special song, because I know you love Frank Sinatra. Here is a special song just for you, 100 today. I have chosen this, and here's the song. The end is near, and so I face the final curtain. As soon as I heard the, the 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 music, I knew what the first few lines are. Holy moly. She would have assumed you thought this through. Well, I told her I had. I said, I chose this oh especially for you, 100 God. today. And, and I'm watching it go round on the turntable and it's live. There's no delay. Yeah. And it's, gone, it's going up the stick and I couldn't pick, I mean, I couldn't stop it because that would have made it worse. <laughs> and I had to play it and I played my way. Apparently she thought it was hilarious. But oh, I, the phone luckily was so busy with sporting cancellations, I didn't take any complaints. But <laughs> that is a true story. <laughs> That's unreal. I was so relieved to hear that she had the good sense of humour about it and enjoyed it. Well, I think she did. She died the next day. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> uh, there you go. Well, it's interesting though, because I was going to ask you as someone who has been in broadcasting and interviewing people, if you had to look at yourself and understand what you do really well, and the flip side being what are the common mistakes people make when they're chatting to people that they they miss out on? Okay. Uh, Common mistakes, you just did it. You asked two questions in one hit. And when you ask a double-barreled question, most people only answer the second part. Right. Because they've forgotten the first part. So double-barreled questions, never. Okay. The trick is listening because everybody has a story. While they're talking, they may say something that you think is a little bit interesting. So instead of interrupting, I just take a little note and I write it down and when they're finished, I'll say, now, just a second ago, you said that once you hitchhiked around the world when you were backpacking. Now, that's interesting and then you might go off on that tangent. Yeah. One of my radio mentors is the great John Brennan. And if you don't know John Brennan, look him up. He's the godfather of Australian talk radio and he passed away recently. And he had this great voice, Lukey boy. He used to call me Luke. Lukey boy, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. <laughs> it's an interesting observation. 
I'll look. Yeah, it's a reframe of it, and it will be fun for our listeners if you want to go back and count the number of times I've asked a double barrel question because that's one of my favorite <laughs> things to do. If you're stuck with somebody that's a little bit obstinate and is only giving you yes no answers, stop asking questions that only require a yes no answer. Mm. So you would ask a question instead of "Is it true that you did this?" and they may say yes, but the way around that is to say, "Describe how this came about." Tell us the story behind this particular episode in your life. They will describe it. Mm. But if you ask them a question that, can only, that only really requires a yes, no answer, often that's all you'll get. Yeah, right. And look, you don't have to be a radio announcer to do what I do. Stories are just how we connect to one another. Those tips I've just talked about will help anyone do that better. And you don't need to be famous to have a story worth telling. The majority of my show and my job is talking to ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Sometimes it's just about being brave enough to share your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a fellow that rang up and once again I said, what the hell are you doing up? And he said, I'm feeding my my fish. I said, what fish? He said, I have a barramundi farm. And I thought that's interesting. He rang up for a competition. The guy ended up being Joe Ayub, who was a most wonderful man, a microbiologist, and a scientist, and he discovered that one barramundi can make six litres of poo in one week. So he stopped breeding barramundi for the fish markets and for the restaurants. He now makes Swift Grow fertiliser. He has now taken this organic fertiliser around the world. He was invited to Sri Lanka by the Department of Agriculture. They are now going to import this fertiliser exclusively from Australia and do away with or chemical fertilisers. He has been in Dubai and he's speaking to the United Arab Emirates and they are growing fruit and vegetables in a glasshouse in sand and just using his Swift Grow. And it started with him ringing the night shift on Triple M for a competition. That's incredible. It is. You know, the beauty of the job that you have, Luke, is that you interview not only celebrities but everyday Aussies who too have brilliant stories to share. Where are some of the best stories that come from the everyday Aussies? When I started on Triple M on the night shift, it hadn't occurred to me, I I don't think, or even management, that we have a hell of a lot of truckies that listen in. Mm. And contrary to belief, not all truckies like country music. So I was providing some fun, some company and some conversation And I realised very quickly that I was getting a lot of calls from people who couldn't put their phone down. They had to talk through it through speakerphone because they were driving. Mm. And because I'm lucky enough to be in a huge network across Australia, three time zones in daylight saving, don't start me on that. But I was getting a lot of calls, (laughs) don't start me on that, I'm getting a lot of calls from truckies who were living a really nomadic, lonely life. Uh, Long distance, long haul truckies are often away for two or three weeks without seeing their family, their partners, their kids, they enjoyed the company. We built up a bit of a network so much so that we have a Truckee Tuesday now and there's a a wonderful bloke who introduced himself to me very early. His name's Rod Hanafy. You probably have heard of him, the president of the National Road Freighters Association, and he sort of hooked into what we were doing and he has a regular slot with me now. And and we talk about the problems that truckies face and it's not just about bad roads or the price of diesel or having a crook boss that's making you drive longer than you really want to or legally should. But it's also about talking about their relationships 
and their difficulty in communicating with their family when they get back after three weeks and they may only have two days at home and they've been working such strange hours, which I relate to, and it's really hard to hold down a relationship when you're working like that. And some partnerships do it and some unfortunately don't. Once upon a time, men didn't like to talk and they didn't like to share feelings. It was unmasculine. It was a sign of weakness. But on on the night shift, we encourage that conversation and it's quite healthy. We work with Lifeline if people are in trouble. I also work with an amazing man called the Reverend Jim Reynolds, who is the head of the Christian Outreach Churches of Australia. And last time I spoke to Jim, he says as a direct effect of the night shift on Triple M, we've saved 16 lives. Yeah, wow. When you mentioned truck drivers and having families that can do it well and there are families that struggle with it because it's such a unconventional lifestyle to be away for 10 days and then come back for a week and then do it again. In your experience of chatting to these folks from around the country, have you found any commonalities or similar things that those who are doing it well have shared with you going, oh, well, me and my partner, we do this. That seems to work for us. Have you seen some sort of common threads? The common thread is I have a partner I can trust Uh because I'm away for a long time. I have a partner that supports what I do. I have someone who understands that when I get home, I'm going to be a bit tired. And a lot of truckies have said to me, I've had to lift my game too and understand that the job that I do, you know, that that endless white fog line that I'm following all night, it's difficult to come down. It's difficult to eat healthily. And those people that don't, often the relationship doesn't last and a lot of the truckies are single. It's important they build up their own network and talk about it. I 100% agree that we've come a long way. It's a common thread on this podcast over the last eight episodes that we see. Um, I guess to finish us off, then what do you feel like as far as we've come, what more do we need to do? What, where, where is the gap left that you would like to see, um, you know, get narrow? Yeah, well, I think we just need to keep the conversation going and encourage people to talk and to encourage people to believe that asking for help is not a sign of weakness, that you have people who love you, who care for you. Mm. Everybody has a story. So look after yourself and the rest will take care of itself. This has been such an incredible chat. You're such a great advocate for... The idea that it's not just celebrities, but everybody, every single person out there has a story to tell and their story is worth hearing. And you being such a great advocate for that, I think is such an important message. And that's the spirit of this particular episode that we're recording today is about that, recognizing that make sure you share your story with the people around you that love you and care about you and you are valued. Exactly. And as the great John Brennan said, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately, Lukey boy. God bless him. Thank you so much, Luke. Luke Bonner is a name that a lot of people would know. But in this episode, I want to show you that just because someone might have a public profile doesn't mean that their story is any more important than yours. Your story matters and everyone around you also has a great story to tell. I'm leaning on the Linfox crew again to prove this by catching up with one of their drivers. Mick Best joins me now. How would you best describe yourself and your career? I'm still learning every day. Oh, I love this. Love. We're already off to the races. Yeah. yeah. Still learning every day. I've been blessed to be in an industry that I never not want to go to work. That That's an interesting feeling, right? When you love what you do, finding that balance between living as well as working, I've found it really challenging. Was that something that ever became a problem for you? 
First of all, let me say that I enjoy my work, as I said, but I still want to win the bloody lottery. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's still there. Yeah. Do you become a bit of a workaholic? Yes, you do mm. because you enjoy it. And once you knock off, it takes a couple of days. So I've just come back from a tour in America and, and Canada. I still every day touch base with work. In the last so many years of being a truck driver, what is one of your first sort of highlights or earliest memories of your a career? I, I really don't know where it really all started, but I remember as a young boy sitting on the side of Dandenong Road watching the trucks and the buses mm. go past. We lived in Carnegie and my uncle was one of the first pioneer coach drivers and he backed down the street with his brand new coach. I was a little tacker <laughs> and my nan, my mum and I traveled in this coach, no one else. And he been given the job of taking the Queen's band around Australia when she visited in 1955. Right. And I always remembered going up the Hume Highway and the gum trees over the top of the road, like it was a single lane through Seymour and, and all that, a little old road. And that, I believe, is where my fascination came. Never left me, never left me from that day on. I started work at 14 and I delivered telegrams. On a bike or in a vehicle? I had a red bike with white guards, right? We all had those. <laughs> and can I can I diverse on a funny story? Please, absolutely. Because I'm only a little short bloke and um, I joined the post office and you used to order the uniform. The postmaster queried my uniform because I had the shortest pants mm. and the biggest bloody hat. It was what? Just like right above the... <laughs> <laughs> like I had this big hat and the shortest pair of pants and they sort of didn't match, but <laughs> life's a funny thing. Did but you that, grow into it? Yeah, I'm six foot now. <laughs> <laughs> like bloody hell. <laughs> but no, that's the time that I think I really just, it just became part of my life. Mm. And then when I go home, I go home to a great family life, which is, we all need. You worked with Lynn Fox? Yes. For how many years now? I first started in... Um, I think it was late 69 or 70, and I left in about 73, I think it was, and I came back not long ago in 92. What was it about the lifestyle as a driver that drew you to it? I just love the outback. I love driving. I love meeting different people. I feel sorry for aeroplane pilots because all they can see is blue, black, and a couple of dots, <laughs> where I have the best view in the world. If you get up in the cockpit of a plane, mm. which I've done many times, it's quite boring. <laughs> Look, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, surely, <laughs> right? We, we, we're, every one of us is made to do something. That's right. Um, what's the longest stint you've gone, just you and the road? Five days. Something. Five days. Do you? I think John Farnham learnt from me because, you know, when I'm in the cabin, I'm as good as him. You <laughs> are, right. Okay, so you just belt them out. No, no, no. I, I think modern the, the modern world now has changed with storybooks and lessons you can learn. So it's a lot more easy than it was many years ago where we turned the radio on and it worked until you got to Brunswick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the noise of the tracks. The tracks now are so quiet and it's, it's, it's just a different world. You were telling me at the start of this chat that you, you're learning every day. What do you reckon is the, the most sort of goosebump-raising moment of learning you had in the last year? I can't pinpoint a one point, 
what I can say without doubt, as you get older, you become more patient. Things don't worry you as much as they did traffic and occasional motorists will slow you and caravans will annoy you a little bit, but not to the extent when you're a younger person. And I think that's just a bit of wisdom comes into you without you knowing. Why, why do you think that is in terms of, I understand the wisdom element of, because I've heard that saying, the older I get, the more I realize how little I know. And I think that's true when I think back to my, there were things that I held so strongly to ideas and ideologies in my 20s that I look back now and go, oh, you're an idiot. You yeah. know, and, yeah. and that's okay. That's what you're meant to do. You, you know, as long as you're evolving and, and you know, reframing certain viewpoints you had, you know, that's healthy, I think. But at the same time, there is this element of, I suppose, where you mentioned patience that I'm curious about as to where that patience comes from. Yeah, look, I don't know. If you ask me, can I point to it? Mm. I, I can't. But can I say I'm a lot happier in myself as I get older. I know how to manage my time and I don't get that stressed about things, even when things go extremely wrong, extremely wrong. Impatience and accidents will happen and accidents will always happen because yeah. people do things. And and at one stage in my career, I went to most of the accidents and um, it takes a toll on you with people dying and car accidents and, and uh, people never get over. It's true what they say. I, I don't know about speed kills, but I do know that um, impatience does. On a more lighter note, I suppose, tell me about one of the more bizarre things that you've ever had to transport. Because I, I spoke to a friend of mine who works in transport and he's had to work in forensics and transporting severed hands and, you know, like like high court evidence. I'm sure in your time you must have moved a few weird things. Yes. How does elephants sound? <laughs> giraffes. And... <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Were they the same trip, the elephant and the giraffe? No. Oh, no, separate. No, yeah. No, 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 no. This wasn't for Jumanji. And there was only so... one. There wasn't two of them, so I wasn't creating a new arc. Right. So they come on the on a, on a ship. Is that right? Yeah. And then from the ship to the zoo, yep. there comes Mick. Yeah, basically. How yeah. long did you have the elephant for behind you? One project was we brought eight over from Thailand and we brought them into Sydney. That was four at a time. And are they on a truck? Or like, what, what's the They flew them in a Russian plane. We put them onto four smaller trucks and did a convoy to Taronga Zoo. Right. Right through the heart of Sydney. And they gave us a green light the whole way. That was the last time I heard a trunk call. A lot of the people haven't wouldn't know what a trunk call was. Years ago, you pick up the phone, you're going to make a trunk call, long distance call. So the last time I heard that was going down the eastern distributor and the <laughs> elephants talking to each other, bellowing. Right, because they're obviously freaking out. They're freaking out. Plus they're speaking in Thai so, language. Well, so they're, they're just going, making yeah. a noise. That yeah. I can't do what elephants They wouldn't do. do the Aussie elephant accent. No, no, you know? no, oi, oi, oi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there was that and um, that was a great buzz to see them being put in their new enclosure at Taronga Zoo. It was very touching to be with those elephants because the handlers have been with them all their life and they were saying goodbye to them when we, oh, it's hard, that was pretty hard for them. It was controlled by the government. I can tell you that's what it was, but it was SEB. What's SEB? Secret elephant business. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> because there was a bit of turmoil about bringing them to Australia. 
What about giraffes yeah, and the height restrictions that yes. obviously have on the road? You might, you know. Well, everyone asked me that after they saw that Hangover movie where they right. Did, did. Yes, of course. That's a horrific moment in yeah. the film. It's heartbreaking. It's sort of heart, well, it was bugger of a day for the giraffe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, that's that's been a problem. But we don't transport them when they're really that high. <laughs> At the present stage, we're currently building some special containers to shift the elephants from Melbourne Zoo down to Werribee. Does it have like a trunk rest or something oh, like that? Oh, it has. Some, it has <laughs> Recliner seats for the well, elephant? Years ago, people used to do things differently. People used to ride push bikes without helmets. Mm. And people used to transport elephants that just on the back of trays. <laughs> it's been a fascinating project to work with them. What do you reckon are the things you know now that you wish you could impart on that youngster back then? in terms of the, the 50 years that I had of him? Keeping up with technology when you're an older bugger like me is hard. When you're a younger bloke, you just go gun-ho. And um, to stand back now and make the job safe is what we didn't do years ago. We would mm. just go and do it without thinking about it. Yeah, deal with consequences later. 100%. So now we look at things a little bit different. And, and that's good. The main thing is to stand back, as I said earlier, and take it in. You don't have to get the job done now if it's unsafe. On the personal note, appreciate what you got there and then. Not aim for everything you can't have. I think I can use an example. Years ago when I got one of my first cars, I thought it was the best thing in the world. It was a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. Most hideous thing you've ever driven in your life. But <laughs> it was good at its, in its day. Yeah. The myth of more, like people think more is enough. I don't know if you know this. Story, these two authors, Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller. Joseph Heller who wrote Catch-22. And they're at a millionaire's party. Vonnegut's like teasing Joseph Heller saying, you know, you realize this millionaire, he's earned more money this week alone than your book will ever earn in your entire lifetime. Heller goes, yeah, you're right. But I have something that this millionaire will never have. I know what it's like to have enough. See, I've got everything. I've got a wonderful wife, wonderful family. I've got a wonderful house. And I enjoy every day I go to work. What else could I want in life? Now you've won the lottery, like I said. Yeah. <laughs> you have won the lottery. You don't yeah. need the Powerball numbers. Can I just diverse onto something else, mm. which I think has given me much satisfaction over the years, having worked for the Fox family for a long time, is working with them. And it's sometimes been their main conduit towards helping Australians, which has been just a great privilege to run on the relief centre for the bushfires for six months. Some of those people are still dear friends. Um, I saw the tragedies. I saw um, just every weekend I'd work and take loads of water up to them and we passed the peak of assisting there. And um, we had the grant from floods and I went up to that. Lindsay sent me up there and, and I worked with some great people in the Toowoomba Grantham area and helped with the recovery and they have very hard times dealing with people with grief and trying to understand their frustration and, and all that. There was a group of people at King Lake. We ran a relief centre there. So what would happen, we would send containers up and then stuff. People would put stuff in them and it was just amazing. Next thing I hear these people calling me and it was a little fire brigade lady. Um, she was butch as ever, you know, and tough. And two others had got their car and a box trailer and collected everything 
from around Healesville and um, Marysville and drove up to Grantham to deliver it and help people. Pretty good thing to do and to be part of it and to be recognised. So I've been blessed by that. Resonates really strongly because I, I know that in my darker times, I found forcing myself to be of service to others mm. made me forget how, you know, I was feeling or the funk that I was in because doing good for someone else, your brain actually can't differentiate between their win and your win. That's yeah. why watching sport gives us so much joy. Even yeah. though we didn't play, yeah. the win is something that we almost like passive smoking. We absorb their celebration. Yes. And I found that by being of service to someone else and making their day better, it was almost like a it, no one loses in that sense. So no, no. that really resonates with me. So that's a really strong point of where I feel comfortable in life. I've been able to help people. Mm. Not just go to work, but help people. So you see, your story matters and everyone around you is living their story too. Hopefully this podcast has given you the tools to write the story of your life that you want it to be. This is the final episode of The Driver's Seat and I sincerely hope it has given you the drive to make some changes in your life for the better. I'm Dilruk Jaisinger and genuinely, thank you so much for joining me.